So when I came to college, uh, I came from a Christian, slightly Christian background, pretty, pretty Christian. I'd grown up going to church. Um, towards the end of my high school experience, though, um, my, my faith was tested as I started having friends who were not walking with God the way that a lot of you guys are. Um, and, and so uh, I started having temptations in my life and started making some, some choices that God would not have been pleased with and really tested my faith. Do I really believe this? I came to college and still believed that there was a God. I would have still said, yeah, I believe in the Bible. Um, but I started having friends who would ask me tough questions. You know, they'd say things like, Kevin, are you really going to base your life on that book? Like, you've got a girl right here who wants to sleep with you. You're not going to do that because of some book that's 2,000 years old? Like, how do we know it's even applicable to our lives now? I mean, it was written so long ago. Why would you, in, why, if, if it was written to a totally different culture, why are you going to apply it to your life? They tell me, Kevin, isn't it like a game of telephone? I mean, if it's so old, like, uh, how, how do we know it hasn't been changed and changed as it's been copied and recopied and translated and retranslated over time? How do we know that the text that we have today when we read, when we read the Bible is anywhere close to what was written back then? Haven't you played that game of tel telephone? The message is always totally ridiculous at the end. It, like, makes no sense. And, and so I had people asking me questions like this. Questions like, well, Kevin, the Bible is written by, man, by men. They've probably corrupted it over time on purpose to use for their own purposes, to control people for their own power. Um, why would you live under the authority of a book that was just written by men? Why do you think it was written by God? Did it fall from the sky like a rock? Just boop. No, it didn't, Kevin. So I had people asking me questions like this, and, and for a period of time, I, I, I had to struggle through these questions. And it took a year and a half of thinking about stuff like this, having friends challenge me. And during that period of time, I was not living in accordance with God's word. Um, eventually, I did get some answers. Eventually, God did draw my heart back to him. And I think that's the most important thing some of you guys are here tonight, you're hoping to find answers. And there are answers. But I want to ask you, even if you had every question answered and everything lined up that said the Bible is totally accurate, it's totally inspired by God, would you still believe him? Would you still entrust your life to him? Would you still put yourself under the authority of God's word? Because ultimately, what had to happen in my life was God had to do something in my heart to draw me towards him and bring me to a point where I said, all right, God, you're worth it all. I believe he is worth it all. I also believe there's answers to these questions. Um, so... This question of can I trust the Bible, I think is a question that every single one of us needs to answer. If you are a Christian in this room, you need to answer this question. Can you really trust the Bible? Because the stakes are too high if you can't. If, you, if, if the Bible is not reliable and not totally true, then you're kind of wasting your life. 
A guy in the Bible named Paul, he says we are to be pitied. We could be out doing whatever we wanted. But yet, for a Christian, they submit themselves to the word of God. So, we got to know if this is true, if you are a Christian. If you are not yet a Christian, if you have not yet decided to follow Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. But I think this question is also very important for you to answer. Because once again, the stakes are too high because If this book is real, where you spend eternity is at stake. My brother, his name's Greg, and he was struggling through questions like these about um, a year ago, and and even still, still now, he's still working through some of these questions. And he's been, he's been wondering, well, how do I know that Jesus is really the one true God? How do I know that the Bible is really true? What about all these other religions? And he's, he's searching for answers, listening to, to debates, reading books, listening to books, talking with friends. And at one point, one of his friends was like, Greg, what's the big deal? Why, why are you spending so much time and thought on this? And he said something like this. If this... This question is the most important question we can possibly ask. It's worth quitting our jobs and not coming back until we find the answer. That's how important this question is. It's worth dropping out of school and and figuring out the answer to this question before you do anything else. Now, I'm not encouraging you to do that. Please, stay in school. Uh, I think he was making an extreme statement, but his point is that this is so important. But first, before I even bring up these questions and and try to answer some of them, I think we need to be on the same page with this one thing. There is real truth. There is real truth. And and you might say, well, duh, Kevin, why why are you saying that? Because there's been been a um, kind of a myth going around or a... um, some sort of a, a thing going around where, where I've heard people say stuff like truth is relative. It's called uh, maybe postmodernism. Some people might call it that. Uh, so they might say truth is relative. Or, hey, if it works for you, that's great. What works for me is going to work for me. Or maybe you'll, you'll hear people say, well, morality is just subjective. There's not really a real right and wrong. But I want to submit to you that if you think this way, You're setting yourself up to be manipulated. And actually, you're not setting yourself up to be manipulated. Someone else has set you up to be manipulated. Do not fall for this. Michael Novak, he says this. It's on the the screen. He says, there's no such thing as truth. They teach even our little ones. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. There are as many truths as there are individuals. Follow your feelings. Do as you please. Get in touch with yourself. Do what feels comfortable. And what he says about the, that people who say things like that is this. He says, those who speak this way prepare the jails for the 21st century. They do the work of tyrants. Why? Why do they do the work of tyrants? Because if you can get someone to believe that there's no such thing as real truth, and that it's up to you or me to decide what truth is, then the only thing left to appeal to is power. Because there's no absolute truth. So we need to be on the same page. 
Also, this gives us the ability to actually have a conversation. If we deny that there's real truth to be found, then we can't really have a discussion because there's nothing to plant our feet in. This also gives us traction for life. If there's truth, then we can start building logical arguments and thinking consistently and coming to conclusions on things and being able to answer difficult questions like these. So here's three questions we're going to go over tonight. The first is one that I've heard many, many times. Has the Bible been changed or corrupted? Let's take a look at that. So this is the, the thing where people will say, hey, isn't it like a game of telephone? Like, hasn't it been just changed and manipulated over time? So what scholars do in order to, to, to find out if a text is reliable, to, to see if a text that we have today is actually similar or the same as the original writers intended, is they use a science called textual criticism. So that's the first thing. Apply the science of textual criticism. So this is the approach that scholars use to determine how close to the text the, the text is to the original. So there's two questions that scholars ask, two main questions that scholars ask to figure out if a book is textually reliable. And the first is how long is the blackout period? How long is the blackout period? Now you might be saying, well, Kevin, what the heck is a blackout period? The blackout period is the, the time between when scholars think the work was originally written and the first ancient copy that we have, the first ancient manuscript that we have. So that's important because if that blackout period is 2,000 years, then we have nothing between the time of when it was written and the first copy that we have to, to compare it to. Um, we, we have no way of knowing if it had been changed or manipulated over time. Now, if it's, say, maybe five or 600 years, well, then we know that the text that we have it might be a little bit more reliable. So that's the first question. The second is how many ancient manuscripts do we have? If we find only one copy of a book, we don't know if that was the original or if it was any, anything close to the original because we have nothing else to compare it to. That may be a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy and it may be nothing like the original. Now, if we have a thousand is that going to be more reliable? Are we going to be able to figure out if, if, the, if the text is accurate or not? Say yes. Yes. If we have a thousand, the answer would be yes. Okay. So we're going to do textual criticism together. Um, so let's look at the blackout period for some ancient texts. So here we go. You've got them up on the screen. So Herodotus uh, the blackout period was 1,300 years, long time, okay? Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years. Livy's Roman history, 900 years. Homer's Iliad, only 500 years, pretty good. And you see how the New Testament compares to it. Only between 30 and 300 years, depending on how you look at it. The first ancient manuscripts we have are about 30 years after the original. The first full copies of the New Testament that we have uh, were about 300 years later. So no secular scholar would disagree with the conclusion that the New Testament is by far the most textually reliable ancient book ever, period. No secular scholar would even disagree with that conclusion. 
The second thing we're going to do is, is look at the, num uh, the number of ancient manuscripts. So you can see we've got eight, eight copies of Herodotus. Caesar's Gallic War got 10 copies. Livy's Roman History, 20 copies. Homer's Iliad, 643 copies. That's amazing. But yet the New Testament still blows all of those away with 24,800 copies in various ancient languages. So... If we were to stack all the pages of ancient manuscripts that we had, that scholars and archaeologists have found, it would stack up to over a mile high. Okay? So, let's just say hypothetically, an evil corrupt ruler or someone tried to change a copy of the New Testament to use for his own evil purposes he would have successfully finished one copy of the New Testament. But too bad, bro. We've still got 24,799 more. You failed, okay? So I just want you guys to see this. So someone, when you hear someone say, hey, the isn't the Bible like a game of telephone been translated, retranslated, copied, recopied? Can, you know, how can, we, how can we depend on it? Just remember, we've got 24,799 other copies and we can call out a copy that may have some changes in it. So the more we find, I, I have some other slides that I'm going to skip. Um, but the more we find, the more archaeologists dig up, the more we're seeing that the texts that we have today, the copies of the New Testament and the Bible that we have today are textually reliable. Um, and especially the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you are familiar with those, that was a finding in a cave that, uh, that was stumbled upon by a shepherd uh, in the 1940s or 50s. And that had a whole bunch of ancient manuscripts in there that were from the first and second century. And when we compared those biblical manuscripts with the ones that we previously had that, the, that were much later, they were almost word for word the same maybe some slight grammatical spelling punctuation uh, differences. Um, so the more we find, the more we're seeing that it's textually reliable. Can you see it? Can you see it? Do you see that the New Testament is undoubtedly the most textually reliable book that we have in the world? <laughs> okay, question number two. Is the Bible divinely inspired? So you might say, okay, Kevin, I'm on the same page with you with the idea that the Bible that we have today is probably the same as it was 2,000 years ago. But that doesn't mean it's inspired by God. And, and that's a great question we need to answer. And I think there's one way that we can ensure or that we can at least add some significant evidence that the Bible really is inspired by God. And that's by looking at fulfilled prophecies. There were over 300 prophecies written in the Old Testament that were later fulfilled by Jesus Christ, that were written hundreds of years before him. So um, why do fulfilled prophecies serve as evidence for divine authorship of the Bible, you might ask? Let me give you an example. And you guys from San Diego, you've heard me use this before, so bear with me and act like it's the first time. Um, so if I came up to one of you guys from Chico, on campus, maybe one of you who came tonight for the first time, if I walked up to you and I said, hey, I'm Kevin, I'm going to tell you everything about your life, you'd go, you're crazy. Now, if I started telling you 
what was going to happen tomorrow morning when you woke up and what was going to happen on your next test and what was going to happen when you graduate and who you were going to marry and what kind of car you were going to want to buy and then buy, what kind of house you were going to live in, all the way to the day you died. And I told you even how you were going to die. You would go, you're crazy, man. Thanks for the talk. I'll see you later. Okay? You would think I was crazy. But what if then tomorrow morning you wake up and the first thing that I told you was going to happen happened? You go, okay, that was weird. <laughs> crazy guy told me something. And okay, it came true. Coincidence, whatever. Now what if until the day you died, one thing after the next that I told you was going to happen happened? And then you came to the day you die, and five minutes before you took your last breath, you, you realized, oh, no, that crazy guy was telling me the truth. He knew the way I was going to die. That would be ridiculous. But if it happened, you'd go, somehow that guy was telling the truth. Somehow he knew something about my life that I didn't know. And in a similar way, when the Bible makes prophetic claims, their predictions about what was going to happen for the Messiah who was to come. And then the Messiah came and fulfilled those things. Now, the Messiah is just another word for the Christ who uh, we would call Jesus. If, if all of those things or came true, then that would show that the, the person writing them was telling the truth. That, was, that, was all, that would also show that the person writing them was divinely inspired, or in other words, inspired by God, because they knew something that no human could know. So the Bible gives some self-verifying tests for us to see if it's really inspired by God. Um, now, you might say, well, Kevin, of these 300 prophecies, what if they're just really vague and it just happened coincidentally? Well, let's roll this video real quick. Scholars have determined that Jesus fulfilled at least four dozen major prophecies, each written a minimum of three centuries before his birth. Their content ranged from specific details about his life to the symbolic implications of his death. Psalm 22 gives a poetic picture by David, written in the first person, of what the Messiah will be like in his suffering. And one of the things he says is that they will pierce my hands and my feet. Now, David wrote, before crucifixion was known, probably by about 300 years. So Isaiah 53 says he was pierced through. It gives us the reason for his death. He was pierced through for our iniquities. So there's a purpose. He dies not just because he's a martyr, but because he's a substitution for sin. A college professor of mathematics and science named Dr. Peter Stoner wanted to determine what the odds were that any human being throughout history could fulfill the messianic prophecies. So he had his students come up with very conservative estimates of the likelihood of any human being fulfilling certain of these predictions. And then they just ran the numbers. And what they determined is that the odds of any human being fulfilling 48 of these ancient prophecies would be one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. Okay, so guys, answer for me. Could it have been a coincidence? No. It's statistically impossible. Um, now, 
I want, I want you guys to see it for yourself. It's one thing for this guy to tell you that there's prophecies, but I want you guys to be able to see it for yourself. Um, I want you guys to see that the, the important events of the life of Jesus were foretold in the Old Testament. The, the last book in the Old Testament was written 400 years before Jesus was born. So there's no possibility of these things being written after Jesus lived and in, in a way being false prophecies. Um, let me just give you a recap of Jesus' life. He was born. He healed people. At the start of his ministry, it was about age 30, he started healing people. He loved people. He, he was constantly rejected by the religious leaders at the time. He knew his purpose, though. His purpose was to save us, to seek and to save the lost. He came to serve. And before he died, he knew he was going to die. And he was in so much distress that his sweat became like drops of blood. Yet he focused on God's will. And even as he was there knowing he was going to die, he prayed this. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then he was betrayed, he was captured, he was brought before Pilate, who was the governor at the time, um, to, to be questioned. And as he was questioned, he remained silent. He didn't make a defense for himself. And he was found not guilty, believe it or not. He was found not guilty. And Pilate, the governor, he said, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Yet the religious leaders got the crowds to say, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they chanted, and then he was treated like some sort of violent criminal, even though he was not. He was found not guilty. He was chastised, he was ashamed, he was mocked, and then he was pierced in, our, in his hands and his feet on a cross, crucified for our sins. Two criminals were crucified next to him. And there he died for you and for me, paying the penalty for our sin, taking our place for, for our sin, taking the place for our sin. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. And he knew ahead of time that we would all go astray. He knew that we would, we, we would deny God. He knew that we would not follow him the way he deserves to be followed, but he still loved us. And he offers complete washing away of sins for anyone who believes in him. By his blood, your broken standing before God can be healed. And then he was raised to life. Now, that was just a little spark notes of Jesus' life. Now, I want you to read a passage from the Old Testament with me. We're going to read Isaiah 53, some excerpts from it. And I want you to see it for yourself. And do you, will you, do you see Jesus in this? Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet he bore the sin of many. This was written over 700 years before Jesus was even a twinkle in Mary's eye. Do you see it? Because if you do, you can be confident that this was really inspired by God. No one could predict that. The human authors who penned it didn't even know exactly what they were writing about. Because God was writing through them. And we can know that the Bible is inspired by God by looking at these prophetic claims and then seeing if they really came true. So, the application for this is rejoice that God has revealed himself to us through the Bible. And I realize I forgot to give you the last application point as well. Um, But anyway, you can ask me later for that. So the final question I want to ask and and try and give an answer to is one that I've heard multiple times from students even this semester. And it's this. If the Bible was written for a different culture, is it still applicable to our lives today? Because you might be able to say, okay, Kevin, I agree with you that the Bible is accurate textually. I believe that we probably have the same book that was written 2,000 years ago. I could even maybe believe it was inspired by God. But does that mean that it's really applicable to our culture today? I mean, would God have written a a different book if he wrote it to our culture? These are good questions to ask. Um, But I I, I just, I I think a lot of times we have the, the wrong picture of what the first century was like. We kind of think of like when the Bible was written in the first century, we kind of think like, Um, It was probably like America in the 1950s, like really conservative and like the wife stayed home and the husband went to work and came home and she was in an apron and was like, hey, honey, okay, how was your day? Why don't you sit down for dinner? And, you know, people never got divorced and, and, you know, like everything was just super conservative. And, And sometimes I think that's kind of the idea. I mean, not exactly, but you get the point. Like people are like, well, wasn't the Bible written to like a conservative traditional culture? And that couldn't be farther from the truth. So when, when people ask me that question, like if the Bible was written for a different culture, I, w- w- is it still applicable to our culture today? Uh, I want you guys to understand that the culture then was much more similar to our culture today than many of us realize. It was extremely liberal. Um, and, and especially when we think about sexual ethics. Like we think... We're liberal today, like in, in our culture, like people are like, okay, a man can sleep with a man, woman with a mo- woman. Well, back then, that was totally normal too. Like whatever you want to do, man. Um, and, and it even got to the point where it was so liberal, if a man wanted to sleep with a child, no big deal. Like that's more liberal than us, right? Yeah, a lot, a lot more liberal. And that was the culture that the Bible was written in, that the New Testament specifically was written, it, written in it. And so, just to give you an idea of 
what the culture was like, um, I want you to take a look at this picture here. This is Greco-Roman, a Greco-Roman um, coffin, basically, tomb. And you might be going, what the heck is going on in that picture? Don't think too hard, but what you think is going on is going on. That's what that's supposed to be. That is a first, central, first century orgy, basically. And the, the, I, the idea about the human body at the time was that you shouldn't withhold your body from anyone or anything. What, whatever you want to do with it, you should do, because the, they thought the human body was the most, the highest amount, uh, standard of beauty, um, that it was the most beautiful thing and should not be withheld from anybody, um, and to express yourself sexually in whatever way you wanted to do so. And so it was very, very progressive. We would, even the most liberal liberals of the liberalist liberals, would think that this had gone too liberal, okay? <laughs> so I just want you to understand that because the Bible was not written to Americans in the 1950s, okay? Um, so with, with that in mind, um, yes, the Bible still applies to our culture, but also I think it's important for us to realize that there is no perfect culture. There's no perfect culture out there. America right now is definitely not the, perfect, the most perfect culture. It wasn't in the 1950s, and the first century Greco-Roman empire was not the, a perfect culture either. And so if a perfect God was to write about how a perfect culture should live, it would offend every single culture. And God would be certainly right every single time. And so what we need to do is not this or that. Okay, this, <laughs> we definitely don't want to do the first thing. I don't know if you can see this, but, but I'll just explain it to you. This is my art. See, the other thing was like Greco-Roman art. And then this is me. I was going to be an art major, and uh, I turned something in like this, and they were like, no, Kevin, you need to do something different. Um, okay, so here's the idea. What oftentimes people want to do is they want to take the Bible and then put it through the cultural, the, put it and filter it through the culture. So they say, I'm going to read the Bible and the things don't fit, that don't fit in my culture, I'm just going to leave out and the things that I like, I'm going to keep and that will be my ideal life. So I'll take what I want, throw out what I don't. Okay, but what we actually need to do, what it means to actually trust the Bible is the total opposite. It means we need to take our culture and our preferences and our lifestyle that is imperfect and filter it through the perfect inspired word of God. And what we get out the bottom of that filter is culture that is redeemed for God's glory. A life that is redeemed for God's glory. And that's how we need to read the Bible. Any other book, I don't care what you do. You can look down and judge that book and you can say, I think this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. But when you read the Bible, the Bible tells you, Kevin, <laughs> you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong. Now, you might think, oh, I don't want to be told I'm wrong. Me neither. Me neither. But it's for our own good because ultimately, God wants to show us how to live the way we were designed to live, and it is the best way. 
So, do you see it? Do you see it that the culture in the Bible really, the culture that the Bible is written to really wasn't so different from the culture that we live in today? Do you see that, that if this is true, we must align our lives with it? So what I want to encourage you guys to do is boldly share the Bible. Do not be ashamed of it. And the application for that is to delight that God has shown us how to live. Delight that God has shown us how to live. So based on these evidences, based on the answers to these questions, can you trust the Bible? I believe the answer is a resounding yes. We can. It is not blind faith. It does take faith, but it is not blind faith. It's not ignorant faith. The final question is, will you trust the Bible? Will you trust it? Now, you can say, Kevin, I actually agree with you on all these questions. But I know what that means. That, that still does not mean that you will actually trust Jesus with your life. The thing that needs to happen now is God needs to do something in your life. And maybe some of you guys are here today because God has been doing something in your life. And you wanted to come here today because you wanted to get answers to questions like these. Let God do something in your life and respond to him. It is the best thing that you can ever do. Now, letting the Bible be your authority in life will require changes. Because you're going to start reading it and seeing, oh man, I got that wrong. Oh, this is way different than the way I'm living. And you might need to make some hard, difficult changes. Maybe that's stopping something. And maybe that's, that's breaking off a relationship that, that you know God doesn't want. Maybe that's tackling pornography to the point where you're willing to do anything to get rid of it in your life. Maybe it's some other addiction. Maybe it's giving up coping by binge-watching TV shows. I don't know. What is it for you? Because if the Bible is true, it is the best news in the world. Because that means there is a way. There is a better way. And there is eternal life for you, for all who believe. Will you trust him? Will you trust Jesus? Will you let him forgive you of all your sins? So what's your next step? What's your next step? I want you guys to take out your connection card. That's what we call them in San Diego here. I think you might call them communication cards. Um, but take that card out and write down your next step. I've got some ideas here for you. Maybe it's one of those application points or maybe it's one of these passionately learn what God says. Read it, study it, process it. Joyfully believe what God says. Expectantly trust what God says. Or faithfully obey what God says. Which I think would be the ultimate sign that God has done something in your life. When you decide, I will faithfully obey what he says. Let me pray for us. And uh, then the ushers are going to come around with some buckets. And you can drop those cards in the buckets. Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are a God who's revealed yourself to us. 
We thank you so much for your word. God, we want to treasure the Bible. We want to treasure this book. God, would you help our lives to align with it? I pray for those people in here right now who, who might be just trying to figure out, do I really believe this? Can I put my trust in Jesus? God, I pray that you would work in those hearts right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nudge them, bring them to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.